Hi, welcome to Bookie, which unlock big ideas from world bestsellers in audio, text, and mind map. Please download Bookie at Apple Store or Google Play with more features. Get your free mind snack now. Today we will unlock the book Freakonomics, a rogue economist explores the hidden side of everything. The chaos of 2020 may remind older Americans of the 1990s. At that time, the nightly news on different channels spun the same story, the world will not get better. For decades, the crime rate in every American city had been rising relentlessly. Death by gunfire had become commonplace, so had carjacking, crack dealing, and rape. In 1995, criminologist James Allen Fox wrote a report for the U.S. Attorney General, which claimed that the rate of teen homicides would rise by 15% over the next decade. This was an optimistic estimate. In a pessimistic scenario, the figure would more than double. Other criminologists, politicians, and forecasters laid out the same horrible predictions. We know we've got about six years to turn this juvenile crime thing around, Clinton said, or our country is going to be living with chaos and my successors will not be giving speeches about the wonderful opportunities of the global economy, they'll be trying to keep body and soul together for people on the streets of these cities. Thankfully, the president's pessimistic forecast did not come true. After Clinton's lament, the crime rate fell year after year all across the country. By 2000, the overall homicide rate in the United States had dropped to its lowest level in 35 years. The crime decline embarrassed experts and they responded quickly, hurrying to explain it. They said it was due to the roaring economy in the 1990s, the proliferation of gun control laws or the innovative policing strategies in New York City that helped turn back crime. These theories sound logical, don't they? However, a good wish cannot make up for the factual error of a conjecture. Several counterexamples are given in this book. First, In the 1960s, when the economy went on a wild growth spurt, so did the violent crime. Second, in Switzerland, every adult male is issued an assault rifle for militia duty, and yet the country is one of the safest places in the world. Third, discounting the effect of the police hiring surge, the crime drop in New York City was only average compared to other American cities. These experts will undoubtedly suffer a blow when faced with such counterexamples. The above discussion on crime rates is only one of many topics in Freakonomics, a rogue economist explores the hidden side of everything. You may be puzzled that the topics discussed in this book are very different from your previous understanding of economics. What kind of economics book is this? In fact, not only do you have such doubts, Many people including the author's peers might not recognize his work as economics at all. The author has said that he has little interest in traditional economic topics such as the stock market, taxation, and deflation. He is more interested in exploring the riddles of everyday life with economic methods. For instance, what caused crime rates to drop? Which is more dangerous to children, a swimming pool or a gun? He explores the laws and truth behind these issues by studying data, such as crime statistics in New York, school students' test scores, and sumo wrestlers' match data. This book did not intend to overturn conventional wisdom, but it did. Whether or not you have studied economics, you will find this book interesting. 
Stephen D. Levitt is a professor of economics at the University of Chicago. He is also an editor of the Journal of Political Economy and the Quarterly Journal of Economics. In 2003, he won the John Bates Clark Medal, a sort of junior Nobel Prize for young economists, and Bill Clinton once urged Levitt to join his think tank. Author and journalist Stephen J. Dubner is a co-author of this book. Next, we will pick three questions to show you how Freakonomics, a rogue economist explores the hidden side of everything observes issues from an economic perspective. Question 1. What do school teachers and sumo wrestlers have in common? Question 2. Where have all the criminals gone? Question 3. What makes a perfect parent? Let's look at the first question. What do school teachers and sumo wrestlers have in common? In Levitt's view, economics is at root the study of incentives. No one doubts that incentives influence people's decisions. There are three types of incentives, economic incentive, social incentive, and moral incentive. Take an anti-smoking campaign as an example. The government can levy a $3 per pack sin tax ban cigarettes in public places, and assert that terrorists raise money by selling cigarettes in the black market to awaken people's conscience. All of these incentives can effectively reduce cigarette sales. Economists often believe the world has not yet invented a problem that they cannot fix if they are allowed to freely design incentive schemes. A steelmaker discharges too much waste? The company is fined for pollutants over the legal limit. Your three-year-old child doesn't eat at mealtime. You make a deal with her that if she has meals on time for a week, she can pick a toy at the toy store. However, economists often ignore the dark side of incentives. For every clever person who takes the trouble to create an incentive scheme, there are thousands of both clever and foolish people who will spend even more time trying to take advantage of it. To observe how people react to incentives, Levitt studied the cheating behavior of teachers and sumo wrestlers. Imagine you are a teacher in the year 2002. That year, the federal government mandated high-stakes testing as part of the No Child Left Behind law to improve students' academic level. You have every reason to oppose this reform. The teachers may concentrate on the test topics, resulting in less flexible lesson plans, and students will be unfairly penalized if they happen to not test well. In addition, teachers are held accountable for the results of high-stakes testing. If students don't test well, your salary will be reduced, and you may even be fired. However, high-stakes testing can also bring you some benefits as a teacher. You may get praised, promoted, or receive a pay raise if your students do well enough. You surveyed this new law and found that there were many loopholes. You can base your lesson plans on questions from past year's exams, which isn't regarded as cheating but goes against the spirit of the test. You can give students extra time to complete the test or instruct students to randomly fill in every blank as the test is about to end. You can even fill in the blanks for students after they leave the classroom. Some teachers in Chicago public schools cheated the test in a bolder way. They deliberately changed the students' answers. How did such cheaters get caught? Think about what you would do if you were these desperate teachers. You would not change too many wrong answers, nor would you want to change the answers on every student's test because you wouldn't have enough time. In all likelihood, 
You might select 8 or 10 consecutive questions and fill in the correct answers for one half or two thirds of your students. You might choose to change answers at the end of the test where the questions tend to be harder and students are more likely to give wrong answers. In that way, your change would bring more potential returns. Now we have made an assumption. Next, we need to collect data and construct an algorithm to search for unusual answer patterns in a given classroom. Consider now the answer sheets from the students in a 6th grade classroom in Chicago. The algorithm found that 15 out of 22 students in the classroom gave the same 6 consecutive correct answers. Is this a coincidence? Not likely. There are at least 4 reasons. Firstly, these questions were near the end of the test and were harder than the earlier questions. Secondly, these students didn't get six consecutive right answers elsewhere on the test. It is unlikely they would get right the same six hard questions. Thirdly, other answers of these students on the test had virtually no correlation. Fourthly, a few students left more than one answer blank before and did so after these six questions. This suggests that the suspicious answers in the middle were filled in not by the students but by the teacher. Another indication of teacher cheating in the 6th grade classroom is the comparison of the results of this test and those of previous years and the following year. The students in the classroom averaged 4.1, 5.8, and 5.5 on their 5th grade tests, 6th grade tests, and 7th grade tests respectively. It is unlikely that the students suddenly became smart one year and not as smart the next year. More likely, their sixth grade teacher worked her magic with a pencil. After analyzing all the data from Chicago schools, the algorithm found evidence of teacher cheating in more than 200 tests per year or 5% of the total. This is a conservative estimate because the algorithm was able to identify teachers changing students' answers and not subtler ways of cheating such as suggesting correct answers and giving students extra time. Most of these academic analyzes tend to be neglected. But in early 2002, Arne Duncan, the CEO of the Chicago Public Schools noticed this study. He asked the creator of the algorithm to help detect cheating teachers. In the following year, cheating by teachers dropped by more than 30%. Apart from teachers in Chicago public schools, sumo wrestlers are also affected by the dark side of incentives. Considered a national sport in Japan, sumo wrestling embodies the nation's spirit and history. It is considered more sacred than other sports. Could cheating to lose possibly exist in sumo wrestling? Yes, it could. Sumo is not so much about competition as about honor. A wrestler's ranking affects how much money he makes and how big of an entourage and following he has. Honor and financial incentives may bring negative effects. In each sumo wrestling tournament, each wrestler has one bout per day over 15 consecutive days. After the tournament, if he has a winning record, his ranking will rise. Therefore, whether he can win the eighth victory directly determines the rise and fall of his ranking. Is it possible that a wrestler with an 8-6 record might allow an opponent with a 7-7 record to beat him? By measuring the data, the researcher once again discovered something strange. After considering hundreds of matches in question, the researchers found that on a tournament's final day, 
the wrestler with a 7-7 record actually won 79.6% matches against his opponent with an 8-6 record, far exceeding the predicted 48.7%. The wrestler with a 7-7 record also does well against opponents with a 9-5 record, winning 73.4% matches. However, when they meet next time, the former's winning percentage falls to 40%. Such a big fluctuation in the winning percentage doesn't make sense. Levitt believes that the most logical explanation is that the wrestlers made an agreement, you let me win today, and I will let you win next time. Through the fraud of teachers and wrestlers, Levitt shows us the dark side of incentives that some economists turn a blind eye to. Levitt said that if morality represents the way we would like the world to work, economics presents how it actually does work. You may agree with Adam Smith's view that people are generally good even without enforcement, but you may also think about the story of the Ring of Gigas that comes from Plato's Republic. The story tells of a shepherd named Gigas who stumbles upon a ring that can make him invisible. With no one able to monitor his behavior, Gigas seduces the queen and murders the king. Today we are just sharing limited content. To unlock more key insights of world-class bestseller please download our app. Just search for B-O-O-K-E-Y at Apple Store or Google Play. Get your free mind snack now.